One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 100. That's a lot of episodes. It's pretty incredible. It, it was a long road getting here and we are here. I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everybody that's been on this road with us and has been listening for our 100 episodes. And to ring in 100 episodes, we have a pretty exciting announcement that we want to share with everybody that we've been soft launching super hard for a couple months now. Let's talk about it, Kylie. What's going on? So you may have noticed that there's a little donut on our cover art. You may have noticed if you're paying attention to our super cool individual cover art that it says Snack Lab Presents. And if you're really adept at clicking through things and searching, you'll notice that we are now part of a podcast channel. Yeah. So a couple of months ago, we joined the Snack Labs podcast network or podcast channel, depending on what service you're using. (laughs) Nomenclature be nomenclature, you know. But we're with Snack Labs. um, And this is a really exciting thing for us. We're going to be releasing an announcement video with Snack Labs sometime in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that because it's going to be sick. Mm-hmm. But I, we want to talk a little bit about why we've joined Snack Labs and what it means for you who's listening. So one of the reasons that we joined is to be a part of something and to have that support. Um, Snack Labs is run by our friends out in Halifax, um, Jeremy, Brian and Taylor, who are part of Sick Boy podcast. Um, and the support we've had from them since we since even before we started our show has been pretty incredible. Um, and joining with them in this way is something that allows us to continue to work with people to resource share and to build something together. And who also shares our outlook on storytelling and how we approach something that is as seemingly simple as quote unquote movie reviews, but using a different lens to look at it and talk about it. Absolutely. And that they totally align with our viewpoint on that, which is super exciting. Yeah, the three of them have been incredibly supportive and champions of what we do and how we do it. Um, The other thing that's really cool about it is right now, all of the shows and there are five of them, I believe, (laughs) um, are out of Alberta or Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so building this kind of close knit 
network that's working together to create storytelling and also support one another um, specific- in Canada. Exactly. Yeah. CanCon, baby. It's pretty cool. Um, what does it mean for you who's listening? You might have noticed in the past week that there are some ads. So there will be ads on the show now. Um, they will likely be at the start of the show, the end of the show, and possibly in the middle of the show. Um, sometimes ads for the other shows. You might have noticed the ad for Life's a Wreck, another Snack Lab podcast. But there might be other ads along the way. Um, so just be aware of that. That's going to help get us maybe a little bit of income <laughs> and <laughs> also just expand our reach um, through being on the network and through having ads on the show. And what else does it mean is that hopefully we'll reach more ears and we'll be able to keep doing this for as long as we want to, which right now is a long, long time. Yeah, exactly. It's just going to put us into more ears, get us more exposure and allow other people in our podcast network at Snack Labs to get the same thing. As far as our show, nothing is really changing. We're still going to keep doing what we're doing and have always done. Um, but this is just giving us more opportunities. And like you said off the top, it's firmly placing us within this community of really great creators who are telling great stories and sharing great pieces of information and just want to lift each other up. And that was our whole reason for wanting to be a part of Snack Labs because what a great ethos to have. Absolutely. So on this 100th episode, we're excited to announce this and we'll be making a more social media announcement in tandem with Snack Labs. But if you want to check them out, they do have a burgeoning um, Instagram page that we'll link to in the show notes. And also check out the other shows um, that are on their roster. They are Life's a Wreck with Kyle Moore, Turn Me On Podcast, um, which has existed for a long time, uh, New Wave, and Dr. Jody Harrington's show, Everyone Comes From Somewhere. There's our fellow Albertan in the mix. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, us. And Snack Labs will be likely bringing on new shows as it continues to grow grow. and flourish. Um, And we're really excited to be a part of it from the beginning. Yeah. So that is our news. And now let's talk about four smackaroons. Hell yeah. I kick things off with a mystery movie pick and I chose the 2018 drama mystery thriller film Burning. It was directed by Lee Changdong and written by Jungmi Oh and Lee Changdong. And it's based off the story called Barn Burning by Haruki Murakami. It stars Ah In Yu as Jung Su, Stephen Yun as Ben, uh, Jung Seo Jian as Hai Mi. And the synopsis. Delivery man Jung Su is out on a job when he runs into Hai Mi, a girl who once lived in his neighborhood. She asks if he mind looking after her cat while she's away on a trip to Africa. On her return, she introduces to Jung Su an enigmatic young man named Ben, who she met during her trip. And one day, Ben tells Jung Su about his most unusual hobby. What do you think of Burning? So we had seen Burning before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was something that I brought to the table pre-podcast mm-hmm. as something I wanted to watch. And we had pretty different opinions of it at the time. We yeah. were both using Letterbox, which we started using Letterbox like, shortly before we started the podcast mm-hmm. um so there's like a period of time where we do have logs for things and you give it a 3.5 and i give it a 4.5 and that's fairly divergent for us we're usually like if we differ it's like by 0.5 yeah not a whole point um i think something that i really liked about this movie the first time and liked even more a second time is that 
it is a really beautiful visual film and it's, it's very slow, but it is a real words movie. Yes. Like what is said. And it's not like things are said often, but when they are said, they matter a lot. And mm-hmm. it really does have that literary sensibility. Um, Haruki Murakami is like a very well-known uh, writer and very literary writer. And I think that that sensibility from his short story is really coming through in the way that the movie is narrated and in the dialogue in the film. Um, And I think I just got so much out of that and my brain makes sense of words and the connections among words really quickly. Mm. Um, And I just found that all of that kind of like simmered and, and continued to stew and, and change and matter in different ways after the film was done. And I really liked that. Yeah. I think that that's a really good way of putting it. A, a words movie um, because I was really locked in on the dialogue and what was being said throughout the film and so drawn in by the dialogue because of the performances, the performances absolutely draw you in. But at the same time, I don't know why I rated this three and a half because it is at least a four for the visuals, the other side of things, because I actually found it extremely visual. And what this is an expert in is being a tension twister, because I feel like as the movie's going on, the tension is just slowly wrapping around you and totally consuming you. And it's a truly affecting slow burn. And what I really like about it is that as the story's going on, no character is sort of safe from us as audience members casting doubt upon each of them and kind of questioning where they're coming from, what their motives are. Like even our, um, but yeah, our protagonist, Jung Su, just starts becoming unreliable. And what I really like is when I was putting together my notes for this, the tagline for this movie is the truth is all in your head. And this movie is all about putting questions about our characters and their actions onto the viewer and trusting their audience to take that away. And you and I have spoken many times about, we really appreciate movies that do that. Yeah. I mean, this is, this film is the, like I said, in such a a literary sense, it really accomplishes the concept of an unreliable narrator without having to be highly stylized or highly hyperbolic, like say an American psycho. Mm-hmm. which is I think doing a similar thing in the sense of what can we trust and what can't we trust? But burning is so much more grounded in reality mm-hmm. such that, I mean, I didn't know that was the tagline and I didn't know much about this film the first time we watched it other than Stephen Yen was in it. And I think he's handsome. Um, and that he was in a Korean film. Mm-hmm. Like, while he, I think had spoken Korean and things. He hadn't been in a Korean production. I don't believe until this film. Um, And so I was really excited to see it. And it wasn't until the end of the movie where I started to question what was true and what wasn't. And I think that this movie can be something that really frustrates people if they're looking for a clear cut answer. Because even in American Psycho, I think by the end, you know what was real and what wasn't. Or there's a pretty strong sense of what it is. And this movie refuses to give you that. Yeah. Like it's its ultimate point is that you don't know. And go ahead and try and decide, but there's no, like, there's proof for both sides and and something that's really wonderful about this. So, I mean, without spoiling the movie, 
one of the key questions is if Steven Yun is a really bad guy or just kind of a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) And those are, those are two very different things, right? That is the question. (laughs) That is the question. Um, And so Steven Yun, I guess, said in an interview that in working with Lee Chang Dong, Lee Chang Dong kind of spoke to him about who the character of Ben is and like what his mind is like. And then he said, I want you to decide what the truth of Ben is and do not tell me. I love so that. only Steven Yun knows what was in his mind as an actor as he decided to play out this role and he hasn't told anyone. So he kinda, I mean maybe his wife, I don't know. But. So he kind of he kind of got Alan Rickmond with uh, Always in Harry Potter. But not because she who shall not be named ha- knew. In this sense, Lee Chang Dong said, I want you to decide and don't tell me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, it's really and truly only Stephen Yun knows, which in real life, it's only an individual person who knows unless something ultimately shows us the truth. So I think that's really interesting and just a real trust in the actor for a director to do that and to not feel like they have to telegraph it. Because ultimately, the point of the movie isn't what truly happened. It's that we can't know what truly happened. Um, which I think for some people could be really frustrating, but I think speaks in a really beautiful and affecting and an unsettling way about like that truth of life. I mean, I think about when the podcast serial like took the world by storm and even now to this day with Adnan Saeed having been, I think he's been officially released from prison. That still doesn't mean he didn't kill her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it The question was, was the case fair and was the case just and was there enough evidence? But, you know, ultimately we don't know the truth of that. And you can listen to Serial and I did and I was obsessed with it and binged it and and you can have your own thoughts based on what's been presented to you. But that's exactly it, what's been presented to you. And that happens in a case. Certain things are presented to you and they're depicted in a particular way and it happens with people in real life. I mean, it happens with the way we use social media, the way that people are curating their lives to create a sense of who they are. But a film like Burning says, that's not the real truth and we can't really get to that. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's deeply unsettling and I could see why people would be like, I don't like it, mm-hmm. but I really like it. Yeah. In your description of American Psycho kind of laying it out a little bit more clearly for the audience... You could almost say that American Psycho is kind of hand-holding a little bit, whereas Burning is kind of letting you hold on to a pinky. (laughs) (laughs) I want to linger on Stephen Young for a little bit because he was a big reason for me picking this. He's hot off of winning his little Globy, his Golden Globy for Beef, which is well-deserved. I just And we had a a double Stevie week with this, and then we also rewatched Nope. I love him so much, and it's... So great to see him come from, I mean, our introduction to him was The Walking Dead. And we loved him in that. He was incredible in that. And I'm so glad that he didn't get stuck or pigeonholed into that. And he's done so many things. Like, he's done comedies. He's done things like this. He fucking, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for Minari. Mm -hmm. He's doing amazing work. And he's going to be in an upcoming movie with Kristen Stewart. Like. Babelard. Yeah, I think that he's being like particular about the projects he chooses, and we tend to align with those projects, like we like them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that this is 
this was a really different role for him, especially, I think, not too far off of The Walking Dead and Glenn being such a likable character. Um, when I think his power in this, too, is that if you're familiar with him from Walking Dead, I think initially, as soon as he shows up on screen, you're like, oh, Glenn, whatever. But it's his character and the way that he plays it that really draws you in. Like, it's it's not just the spectacle of, this is Stephen Young. It's like, oh, this character is super compelling and yeah, this a, a is mystery. Not no, not not at all. I I love how much this movie likes to linger and it has scenes that linger, both with its dialogue, but it has wonders in it that are so gorgeous, but they're wonders that you almost want to end. Um Yeah, because it it leaves you uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the ending is a is particularly a gut punch in that way and, and using that wonder to to create that sense. This is a movie I'd really like to see in a theater. Mm -hmm. I think to like really like those visuals on the big screen and then to really grab my attention. Um, Something that's really compelling. There's this really, it's the scene that the um, poster artist from this really pivotal scene in the film. um, They filmed that scene for a handful of minutes every day for a month to get a consistent twilight. Wow. Which is wild. It's a commitment. Um, there's a, a reviewer who I, I really liked what she said about the film. I think that'd be a, a nice way to end talking about this. So her name's Jessica King and she said, quote, the embers are banked up so gradually that it's not until a few hours after the ending of this elusive riveting masterpiece that you are far enough away to appreciate the scale of the conflagration. Yeah, that's, Super well put. It's one of those movies that like it ends and you're kind of like, hmm, it's got this unsettling music. This is definitely a movie to like let the credits play and think about what you just watched and not burst any bubbles for yourself or anybody else. But it's a movie that kind of keeps, if you let it, will kind of keep. Just lingering. Yeah, wiggling in your brain as you think about it. So yeah, yeah, I, I quite like it. It's one that. I don't think I could watch it all the time, but it is one I want to revisit semi-frequently, and I think I'll get more out of it every time. Yeah, and this watch, it brought me to more alignment with you. Uh, I believe I bumped it up to a 4.5 because it, it is so masterful, and I I don't know what was up the first time we watched it. Maybe it was just an off day, but... This is the kind of movie that I think if you're really not up for something slow, it would be that your brain just like... Your attention just wasn't in the right place that it'd be easy to dismiss it. And I've certainly encountered movies like that where when I see them a second time, I'm like, oh, I just wasn't in the right headspace the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one to definitely, like when you're in a space to be intellectually, visually, and ethically stimulated, <laughs> that's with something that's quite slow and requires patience, that's the time to watch it. 100%. Well put. How'd it make you feel? It makes me feel intellectually and emotionally lit up. Oh, nice. I also went for the wordplay and it made me feel engulfed by its moral questioning flames. We um, (laughs) ill-advisedly went to the theater to see a pretty um, special showing of of the film Stray Dog. It's a 1949 crom... Crom? Crom. Crom. It's a 1949 crime drama film noir. There's where the... I put crime and noir together for crom. Crom. Um... This is our first film that we've seen by Akira Kurosawa. 
big deal. It's a, it's a really big deal. So he directed it and he wrote it alongside Ryuzo Kikushima. Um, it stars Toshiro Mifune as Detective Murakami. Murakami coming up again, that name. Uh, Takashi Shimura as Chief Detective Sato and Kaiko Awaji as Harumi Makai. Synopsis is during a sweltering summer, a rookie homicide detective tries to track down his stolen Colt pistol. What did you think of Stray Dog? Well, I mean, we did, definitely did not see this in a sweltering summer. <laughs> no. We were having a wild weather week uh, of which uh, fell on the night that we were supposed to go see this. Uh, we had just a dump of snow. It was quite a treacherous drive out to Metro Cinema. But we were always so torn because we like to go out whenever they do 35 millimeter screenings because it is such a a special thing that they do and this is also a tough print to get a hold of uh, as we were told in the preamble before the film and seeing our first kurosawa in the theater is also a big deal i i find for me that film noir is a genre that i struggle with a little bit yeah it's not my fave genre yeah like i think if metro didn't play them I, it's not one I would gravitate towards at home. Yeah, that's the, I was talking about this with a few folks who we've developed friendships with through Metro where I said, often I'm really happy to hand over the curation of especially cinema classics, like Mm -hmm. history of cinema to Metro because they're movies I likely wouldn't pick at home, Mm -hmm. but I do want to see. And they will hold my attention more in the theater if the audience isn't piss poor. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a bit of a bummer because we did such a treacherous drive to this film and we probably shouldn't have. And you were a little grouchy about me kind (laughs) of pushing to go that we ended up not going to see Paris, Texas, which I also like, that's one I'm more likely to choose at home, but still isn't one that I would immediately pick. And we, mm-hmm. I've never seen um, Win Wenders, is that his name? Yeah. I've never seen a film by him. I don't know if you have. No. Um, and so I also really wanted to see my first film by him in the theater. I thought that would be cool. And they actually played it twice, but they played it once when it was snowing just as bad as when we saw Stray Dog and we're like, we shouldn't have gone. The roads were bad. Like it was dangerous to drive because mm-hmm. we're about half an hour away when the roads are good. Um, and then the next day they played it, it was like the coldest it's possibly ever been in my life. Um, it was creeping to minus 50 Celsius, which is incredibly cold. We had moments of like minus 50 Celsius with minus 60 wind chill. So we ended up not seeing that. Um, and then we're not going to go see the third man tonight Mm -hmm. because it's still really cold, which just bums me out because these, like you said, these are the movies that. I probably wouldn't pick at home and that's why I especially want to go see them when Metro plays them because I'm like, okay, they're playing it. Now's the time to see it. I can't imagine myself ever having really honestly ever watching Citizen Kane or The Trial or I mean, like there's so many movies we've seen that like are pre-1960 or um, or just like classic cinema things that just have kind of never made their way to my plate that I've allowed Metro to curate for me mm-hmm. um, and often they're curating them in tandem with anniversaries or um, what are they? What's the word for it when they make it look better? Restorations. Yeah. With restorations, I believe the third man that they're playing tonight is it's the first restoration of it that's ever happened. Mm. So yeah, but this one, especially 
bummed about missing Paris, Texas and the third man. But this one, especially I wanted to go see because it was in 35 millimeter. And I just felt like our first Kurosawa ever in 35 millimeter for it's like, what is it? 75 year anniversary? Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Math. Math. Yeah. It's as, as the preamble kind of said too, with 35 millimeter, you never really know what you're going to expect because prints get, shipped around and travel so much over the course of their lives that they pick up little artifacts along the way. Like at one point we got to a certain reel and just the, uh, the sound information, you could just visibly see it on the, along the left strip of the screen. I felt like if we just kept pushing the dial, we'd see more of Samara's life, you know, we'd figure (laughs) out where she lives. 100%. (laughs) And there's, yeah, there's just so many artifacts and when it's assembled, there's jumps that happen and the projectionist has to, has to fix it up. And I love that so much. When I worked at the theater, I worked with 35 millimeter film and had to put it together, break it down. And I had to, I knew where jumps were and stuff. So I had to be up there fixing it. I find that whole process really fascinating. And it was like one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life was learning how to thread and make, put together prints of films. Well, so that's the thing, not all... There, there are increasingly fewer theaters that can play 35 millimeter, but on top of that, increasingly fewer people who, even if the theater can play 35 millimeter, can operate the 35 millimeter, mm-hmm. right? And, and do it well. So, yeah, it was really special and, and it was very busy. I was like, ah, this is going to be dead because the roads are terrible. Mm-hmm. No, it was busy. I'm sure it would have been even busier had the roads not been awful. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, we, we we got a chance to watch our first uh, Kurosawa film, and while film noir is not my immediate genre, like my genre of choice, and I guess this film has been like um, when you look at it in the history of cinema, it's been kind of placed as a formative film for what we now know as the buddy cop mm. drama, like the but buddy cop comedy, like that kind of can be traced back to this as one of the earliest examples of that. And those are also not films I would typically choose. Right. But I was so impressed, you know, this is made in 1949 and so much of it felt really modern. Yeah. Not necessarily the story, but the way it was shot, Mm -hmm. like felt like what some of the stuff that we love about, and we've, you know, really since making this podcast have discovered we love about 1960s film Mm -hmm. felt like it existed in this. So I don't know if in Japan they were just making film better earlier <laughs> yeah. than in um, wherever Bergman's from mm-hmm. and in America. But there were sequences in this film and shots in this film that just blew me away. And I was so glad to have seen in the theater. Yeah, I agree. It it plays in such a contemporary way and it has such a lock on not being beholden to a genre. I felt because like while it is labeled a crumb, <laughs> crumb film <laughs> noir, crumb, yeah. um, I actually laughed quite a bit in this as well. So it had quite a bit of humor infused into it and some kind of silly moments and some nice moments, but also some really heavy and some dark explorations of some very human shit. Well, I mean, I do feel like that. I like the simplicity of where the plot starts, which is just a a, a very new cop has his gun stolen, mm-hmm. right? And and this ethical question that kind of plagues him throughout the film, which is if crime 
happens with my gun being used, am I responsible for that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some Sato, I think, says to him at one point, like, well, if it wasn't your gun, it'd be a different gun. But Murakami just doesn't feel that way. And so that different in, difference in ethics actually is really compelling. And I kind of jokingly said, is this like the first ACAB movie? <laughs> Depending on how you read it, because where it ends, it kind of feels like if you read it one way, it's really troubling. Yeah. And if you read it as like Kur- Kurosawa supports that, then it's quite troubling. Yeah. But if you read it as actually the film is suggesting that that's not great and that a person, especially a cop thinking this way and encouraging other cops to think this way, young cops who are, who have a different way of thinking, then this kind of shows the process of how all cops become bastards right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a really compelling way in 1949 post-war Japan. Um, which I found really fascinating. Something else I really liked about watching this, and I don't think I've mentioned this to you, is just I feel like we've seen so many depictions as people who who grew up in North America, we've seen so many depictions of 1950s North America. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know I can tell you exactly what that looks like, but I haven't seen depictions of like 1940s, 1950s, or just like 1950s and, and earlier in other places that were made at the time and sort of genuinely accurate. Mm-hmm. And so seeing like late 1940s Japan for like the fashion and the um, architecture and the societal kind of structures at the time as like a historical document mm-hmm. is really fascinating. And I guess this film was and still is incredibly well praised for the realism of its depiction of a post-war Japan. Mm. And that's, I think, really incredible. And in fact, Ishiro Honda, who was the assistant director, um, a lot of the shots of Murakami where you don't see his face are Ishiro Honda um, because they were filming in some pretty, like, dangerous areas to film in and in, like, Yakuza-run territories. Mm. And so uh, Kurosawa has said, this is a quote from him, I had Honda do mainly second unit shooting. Every day I told him what I wanted and he would go out into the ruins of post-war Tokyo to film. There are few men as honest and reliable as Honda. He faithfully brought back exactly the footage I requested. So almost everything he shot was used in the final cut of the film. I'm often told that I captured the atmosphere of post-war Japan very well. And if so, I owe a great deal of that success to Honda. Wow. And I don't know if you knew this, but Ishiro Honda, so that's the guy who went out and took all this film that has or mate, the guy who went out and captured all of this film that is then being praised for its de- accurate depiction of post-war Japan, he was the writer and director of the original Godzilla. Thought I recognized the name. And went on to do a lot of the, like he's he was very involved in the like OG run of Godzilla films. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, Godzilla minus one is very much wrapped up in post-war Japan stuff as well. Yeah. So, there was even a link to films coming out now back to the influence of that era of post-war Japan and how it was being depicted on screen. Well, and there is that, I feel like that's really like top of my mind this year between like my criticisms of Oppenheimer, my praises of Godzilla minus one, and then seeing this, which is not made now, mm-hmm. but was made then and, 
isn't necessarily, that isn't the only aspect of the film, but one of the key questions that comes up is like, what happens? Where is the psyche of men who have had to fight in the war? And what happens to them when they return to Japan? How that can shape not only the rest of their life, but is influencing the culture Mm -hmm. as these things happen to multiple men. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting lens to look at this. Cause again, yeah, like you said, in a time right now when Oppenheimer is being lauded as this incredible film and it, and what it's exploring, like it's exploring this man who created a weapon that is then used to destroy countless lives by other people. And here is like a bit of a, in post-war Japan, it's a bit of a micro version of that where a man has a weapon and then it's taken from him and used to start destroying other lives. And, and there's this... And dealing with the repercussions of that and the outcomes of that. Yeah, and like what I really did like about this movie, other than like there's some absolutely, like I mentioned already, beautiful shots. There's a scene in a field near the end of the film that I thought was just gorgeous and and powerful um and a scene with a dress Mm. but those are two that i'm just like those are possibly some of the best visually shot scenes i've ever seen but both murakami who has this like very like existential mindset throughout the film and then also like the man that he's seeking they're both veterans who both experienced having their backpacks stolen when they were on their way home from the war and it's very Batman Joker, very character foil in that, Mm. that experience did a different thing to each of them. The exact same experience set Murakami on the path to become a detective to be like, I want to prevent things like this from happening. And it sent the man who eventually has his gun onto the path of nothing matters. Who cares? This world is dog shit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's some really powerful stuff in the like metaphor of the stray dog, like the stray dog versus the rabid dog and and what can prevent the stray dog from becoming a rabid dog. And once the stray dog is a rabid dog, is there nothing left to do but get rid of it? Mm -hmm. Um, And a character like Sado, who seems to believe that like, well, stray dogs will eventually become rabid dogs. So get rid of them while they're strays. And a character like Murakami, who seems to think like, a stray dog is not inevitably going to be a rabid dog. So what can we do to prevent that from happening? Mm-hmm. And then the a cab in between, <laughs> they're not in between, but like mm-hmm. how that turns into a, an a cab story. Um, I don't know. I actually, I found it very emotionally weighty. It's not something I'm necessarily going to revisit all the time, but I, I did find it quite powerful. And something I find really, really compelling that I learned about this is I guess Kurosawa first wrote it as a novel thinking that would help him write the screenplay. Interesting. And then he was like, oh, this actually made writing the screenplay more difficult because they're very different mediums. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot lately about mediums and how we rewatched The Shining this week and thinking about how the novel The Shining and the film The Shining are such different things. And in fact, Kubrick's not really trying to adapt The Shining, but it also, it really is The Shining, but they're such fundamentally different thematic pieces. Um And how medium is so relevant in that. Mm. Obviously something I need to think about as an English teacher as I teach my students that like you can't just watch the film version of a text that we studied because they're different mediums. 
and the text creators are doing something different with them, even if the adaptation seems faithful. Like even when we watch Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, he's using sound in a way that doesn't exist in our just like reading of Shakespeare's original text. Mm -hmm. He's using camera angles and cuts and he's adding to Ophelia's character through these like non-dialogue scenes and you just can't analyze them in the same way, even though it's a pretty faithful adaptation of the original text. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was so interesting that Kurosawa was like, I'm going to write it as a book and that's going to help. Then he's like, damn it. It didn't. (laughs) It made it trickier. (laughs) Piss and shit. So anyway, I don't know. I, I, I got a lot out of this film and I am glad we braved the treacherous roads for it. I, uh, in this moment, I find myself in yet another place of being grateful for what we do here because I now like the film and appreciate the film a lot more after having this conversation. What it's saying and the effects that it has on me now based on our conversation is a lot stronger. I think of if we'd had this show when we first watched Burning. Would have been more aligned. Absolutely. Yeah. The moral of the story is I'm brainwashing you with my words. For 14 years. <laughs> this is a consensual partnership. <laughs> I'm not hypnotized. <laughs> I am not magic. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I got I got a lot out of this. And while I'm sad we've missed a couple other Metro films this week, I am glad we made it to this one. And I'm glad we have now seen a Kurosawa film. Mm-hmm. And many more. And many more. How did Stray Dog make you feel? It made me feel both compelled and challenged. How did it make you feel? It made me feel grateful for classic cinema that still feels resonant and modern. Mm -hmm. I feel like, yes, there's a lot of it that feels 1949, but the way it's shot feels very modern and the ethical questions, especially related to policing and marginalized folks and folks that are committing harm, that existential ethical questioning still feels very resonant. Yeah. It is honestly such a amazing feat when something that is made so long ago can feel still so contemporary and in a way timeless for good or bad. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. All right, I had a mystery movie pick. As we've mentioned, it has been a deep freeze in Edmonton. It's been very, very snowy after a nearly dry December, nearly, I think it was an entirely brown December. 
Um, so I was like, let's pick a snowy movie. <laughs> and I picked Fargo, the 1996 crime thriller directed and written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, otherwise known as the Cohen Brothers. It stars William H. Macy as Jerry Lunegard, Francis McDormand as Marge Gunderson, Steve Buscemi as Carl, Peter Stromer as Geyer, Harve Presnell as Wade, and John Carroll Lynch as Norm. Synopsis, Minnesota car salesman Jerry Lundegaard, it's an apt crime, falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. <laughs> what did you think of Fargo? I mean, yes, it is cold as fuck right now where we are, and this was a perfect movie for it. I mean, and like you said earlier, we followed it up perfectly with The Shining, which you eloquently put is not a Halloween movie. This is a middle of a winter wasteland movie. So if it's really cold, put on The Shining. We haven't watched this for so long. I can't even remember the last time we watched it. Like, I feel like maybe we watched it before the show started up and then we dipped into the show. We were there for a couple seasons and then we just kind of left this universe behind. But it is a uniquely Coen Brothers universe. And while I think that there's other films that tonally borrow from it, I think that they were definitely kind of Champion, champion, oh, champion, championing. <laughs> Thank you. In this blending of truly upsetting violence and blending it with humor. And that became something that they carried through many of their subsequent films as well. It's an interesting one because my Facebook memories tell me that I watched this for the first time. Would have been probably in 2008 with um, one of my besties who I was very close with at the time. And I watched almost all the movies I watched with um, Garrett. And our, my Facebook memories show that we just endlessly were quoting this movie to each other on our Facebook status nice. for a series of days um, right after we watched it. And I do remember, like, we thought it was so funny. Yeah. Like, we couldn't stop laughing. What was interesting to me about, I haven't watched it since then, since 2008. Yeah. Although I've watched the show, so maybe it feels like I haven't had to revisit it. Yeah. Um, watching it this time, I thought it was more upsetting than it was funny. Yeah. Which might just be a time of my life, like, thing. It still is funny, but I remember finding that, like, oh, yeah scene, mm -hmm. like, gut-busting funny. And this time I'm like, those women that she's talking to, like... Carl and Guy didn't treat them very well. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. even in that scene. And I and I, I do think that the Coen brothers know that. And so I think it's interesting how this movie can can play depending on where your mindset is or where you are in life. Mm -hmm. Um and I found it so dark in a way that like Lebowski is light. Yeah. Like if we're looking at like two sides of the coin of like they're both playing with humor and darkness, I do think Fargo is dark with spots of humor. Lebowski is light with spots of darkness. Yeah. And then like no country for old men is just dark. Yeah. <laughs> I've discovered for myself that, I mean, I, ha I would and have revisited the big Lebowski a lot more over the years. And I think that that's where I tend to lean when the, the Coen brothers are dabbling in this sort of, this sort of genre blending. 
And that's what I'm looking forward to with like the drive away dolls. Like it seems like it's leaning more humor while still dealing with. That's just one Cohen though. <laughs> well, the Cohens are the Cohens and the Safties there. And the Wachowskis, like all these sibling pairings are just. Siblings off. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> we're going different ways. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking Francis. <laughs> She's my wife. My wife. <laughs> um, I'm with you though. Like I was, I remember thinking this was so funny and so hilarious when I saw it back for the first time. Yeah. Probably in high school, end of high school. And now I was just so wrapped up in how dark and heavy everything kind of felt. Yeah. Like when the violence starts happening, like it just kind of comes out of nowhere and then it just keeps happening. And between stray dog and this, like, just want to say like no good can come from guns and I hate them so much. Mm-hmm. Um, guns scare the crap out of me. I've never shot one. There's a shooting range out at um, my mom's cousin, kind of my uncle, but I don't call him uncle. Uh, he has this plot of land and my brother likes to shoot at the shooting range there. And I think you shot once and then like you guys handed it to me and just called up the void. I'm like, I'm going to shoot someone. And then I just was like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> then you shot all of us. <laughs> and, and, and this is actually purgatory and we're all ghosts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to purgatory, the podcast. Um, I, yeah, guns freak me out. And the Coen brothers do have a lot of gun violence in their films. Now, I had a I, uh, letterboxd friend talked about how they find Norm and Margie's relationship to be like the like bomb needed in this like, violence in the film and especially where the movie ends is just this like even amidst all this violence there can be love and there can be kindness and there can be like this connection that you have even when all of that exists outside of you um i think that one of the kindest things that exists in film history is john carroll lynch's character getting up early in the morning when his wife gets called into work make her eggs to make her some breakfast (laughs) yeah i mean i think something i really noticed in this viewing of the film and I, I can't recall if I noticed it in 2008, but I doubt it is how Jerry and Norm represent these like two different kinds of husbands, mm-hmm. these two different kinds of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, there is never a good reason to organize your wife's kidnapping. <laughs> let me just say, and Norm would never do that. No. Norm would never do that, no matter how much money he needed. And why does Jerry need this money? You never really learn. I, I, I don't know. But I hate him. He's the ultimate piss boy. Yeah, he's he's really he's really bad. And I love that Norm is like the anti-Jerry. Yeah. We also like, we have to be as Albertans grateful for this film because pretty much all of the like cinema money that comes into Alberta started with Fargo filming here. Yeah. Um, And now Alberta is becoming like a more, I lost my words, but uh, there is more television and, and film happening here. Last of us obviously being a big one under the banner of heaven, which I didn't watch, but Mm -hmm. um and it really started with Fargo and Fargo coming back every year and filming here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a deep Albertan connection. Yeah. What that wasn't intended, I'm sure, when this this film first came out. But Yeah. It it's uh it'd be nice to see more films filming here and actually being set in Alberta and not just using us for our scenery. But, but hey, 
He got to start somewhere. Got to start. If Pedro's going to continue to hang out here, I'm not going to get mad about it. Yeah, I agree. Paul Mesco, when you're filming something here. Yeah. When's Gladiator 2 coming? <laughs> um, I I think that there are some superb performances in this. I mean, most notably, Franny McDorm is my fave in this movie. It's interesting to have this as the same week as Stray Dog, where I think of it as such a like compelling exploration of like where police violence and like dehumanization of people can come from mm-hmm. because Margie is such a good cop. Yeah. And like, and <laughs> like know? checks her colleagues on, I don't think that's good police work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> or, you know, even just like the sweetness with which she doesn't, let someone know that she doesn't want the coffee they made them, you know? Yes. She's she's great. She's smart. She's very good at her job, but she, also has, like, a level of humanity and kindness. Like, she believes in the good in humanity without being blinded by it. Yes. Which is And there's the opposite important. that can happen, too, which is what we see with Sado and Stray Dog, right? Which yes. is, like, you only believe in the inevitable violence and chaos of humanity and you're blinded to the good. I mean, I don't know that he's blinded. There's a really interesting like moment in stray dog where he like takes a child's toy and like sets it up Mm -hmm. and his like family is a, it like punctuates parts of the movie, but he seems to think that the, the better part of humanity is violent. And if they are, you can't change that. And so people who aren't need to be protected from that. And that blinds him to like the possibilities of reform and care. Mm -hmm. Right. And Margie is kind of the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how realistic that is in terms of cops, but really like her. Yeah. Really like Margie. Me too. Apparently they call this Minnesota nice, the accent. Yeah. And it's like super hyperbolized. And I guess people in Minnesota are sick of like being asked to say lines from the movie. Like people come and they're like, can you say, oh, geez. I mean, it's not too divorced from the typical Canadian accent that people use. Every once in a while, I'm like, wow, I just sounded so Canadian. Yeah. What are you all about? Eh? <laughs> um, This movie was really well received. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually. I didn't know that. No? Like That's why I'm saying that. Like I didn't realize it was nominated for so many things. Coen Brothers have just been in with the... Who does the Oscars? The Oscars. It's all the people named Oscar. No, but like the Hollywood Foreign Press does the Golden Globes. Who does the Oscars? I don't know. Whoever they are, the Coen brothers have been there forever because this was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and then it won Best Actress for Frances McDormand. Nice. And it won Best Original Screenplay. Also nice. Yeah, so... Frances McDormand is is amazing. Mm-hmm. Everything I've seen her in, even if like I didn't love the film, I thought she did a phenomenal job in it. She's won two now? One for this and then one for Nomadland? I, think... I mean, if so, good for her. Three. She's won three. What the uh, fuck? Three billboards. Oh, she won for three billboards. Yeah. So she, I think she's been nominated for quite a few. I really like her attitude at these things too. Like when she won for Nomadland, she's just kind of like... I mean, I know some people don't like how kind of cavalier and just kind of <laughs> I like... D- I like it. <laughs> how like spicy she is about it. No, she's won four. What? For what? 
What's the other one? Wait, what? What, wait? So she's been nominated. She was nominated for Mississippi Burning and didn't win. For Fargo and did win. For Almost Famous and didn't win. North Country didn't win. She was nominated for Almost Famous? (laughs) Best Supporting Actress. I'm still, though, amazing. (laughs) Three Billboards, which she won. Nomadland, which she won. And Women Talking? Which I'm confused about. In lead or supporting? It says best picture. Oh, she oh she was a producer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I get it. So Nomadland and Women Talking were nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And Nomadland won Best Picture. And that's considered a win for her. Okay. Yeah, because she... Yeah. But for acting, she's won for Three Billboards, Nomadland, and Fargo. And she's been nominated one, two, three, four, five, six times. That's a lot of times. Yeah. That's great, though. She's great. She's a very, 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 very good actor, and I like her a lot. And I like this movie. I think it was fun and chilling to watch it in an Edmonton deep freeze. Um, And I think I I will revisit it, just not like every year. Yeah. If it played at Metro, I'd probably go see it. For sure. Um, And that's usually the case with Big Lebowski. Yeah, we go every year and see it at Metro. I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'd revisit it as much as I continue to revisit Big Lebowski, but it's, it's a, it's another gem from the Coen brothers that I enjoy watching. It's good. And I'll always return for Franny and John Carroll Lynch. I, I like them both in this. And Steve Buscemi is his like grossest chaotic self. Yeah. <laughs> he's so lovely in the Big Lebowski and he's so not lovely in this <laughs> yes. funny looking guy. Yeah. Um, how... Did Fargo make you feel? Tonally satiated in our current winter wasteland. How do you, how did it make you feel? Some, uh, some poetry. <laughs> um, Fargo makes me feel obsessed with the love of Margie and Norm in a senselessly violent world. Yeah. Take us somewhere weird. For the last film of this week, I had a mystery movie pick and I chose to revisit the 1994 comedy family romance, The Little Rascals. It was directed by Penelope Spheris. The screenplay was written by, by Paul Gway, Stephen Meiser, and Penelope Spheris. And the story is by Paul Gway, Stephen Meiser, Penelope Spheris, Mike Scott, and Robert Wolterstorff. And it's based on Our Gang by Hal Roach. It stars Travis Tedford as Spanky, Bug Hall as Alfalfa, Brittany Ashton Holmes as Darla, Kevin Jamal Woods as Stymie, Jordan Workall as Froggy, Zachary Mabry as Porky, Ross Bagley as Buckwheat, Sam Saletta as Butch, Blake Jeremy Collins as Woim, Blake McIver Ewan as Waldo Johnston III, and uh, Cortland Mead as Uh Uh-huh. Synopsis. When Alfalfa starts to question his his devotion to the He-Man woman-hating club's principles after falling for the beautiful nine-year-old Darla, the rest of the gang sets out to keep them apart. What do you think of Little Rascals? This isn't a particularly well-received film. (laughs) But. But I grew up loving it. A staple of both of our childhoods. And like, you know when you watch something as a kid and there's just key parts of it that are like burned in your brain? Yeah. Like the sound of them eating the sandwiches is burned in my brain. That is some of the best sound design 
ever. And there's just, we, we actually quote this fairly often in yeah. our house. So this was just a childhood staple and it's always kind of fun when there's something that was independently a childhood classic for each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that we individually remember or stuck with us from uh, being from watching it as children. So it was interesting to to revisit it. Um, I really like the character of Darla. I'm sure that wasn't where my brain went when I was little, but I love that she just like stands up for what she wants and she won't let any boy tell her what's what. And if a boy is like rude to her, she's like, I'm done with you. I'll go find another boy. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Good for you, Darla. But then if that boy's a dink, it's like, well, done with you. Yeah, I love I love just her whole attitude when she's on the front porch and Buckwheat and uh, Porky um, <laughs> are there to like deliver Alfalfa's note. And she's just like nursing a Coke and like in, <laughs> in her, her tutu. Tu- in her tutu. And she's like, what's up, guys? <laughs> she just gets grouchier and grouchier. You like a lot of Darla's lines. Yeah, she has a lot of uh, candlelit lunch. I'm dazzled. <laughs> But I also like when she like challenges Alfalfa on like being a part of the He-Man woman hating club. And then she's like, I'm a woman. Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's I don't know. It's really funny and it's really cute and all the kids are adorable. And at the same time, it feels kind of dark in our landscape in a way that maybe, you know, in a landscape where Roe v. Wade is overturned and feels like we keep sliding back. The, like where this film eventually ends up while lighthearted in the film I'm like is kind of dark and this like you mentioned it's based on a, it's actually based on a series of short films by Hal Roach called Our Gang which like had many different iterations and I guess it's largely inspired by one of the films where the group forms like a KKK type group but the black kids are allowed to be in it so that's pretty dark to say the least. And I was reading I was reading a lot about this original Our Gang uh, series because I guess that it was like lauded and also like criticized for having an integrated cast where like all of the characters, both black and white, are like of equal importance within the series. But still there's a lot of like racial stereotyping for those characters. Mm-hmm. So... On the one hand, like having an integrated cast where like the kids are all equally important is great, but then there's some pretty like nasty jokes made at the expense of those kids. Um, and in general, I mean, some of the, especially the like black actors who played these characters, they said they're stereotyping with all the characters, mm. like stereotyping based on like the like socioeconomics and the way kids look and. You know, there's like fat phobia involved in that too, but there's something particularly insidious about that when when there's that level of inequality at the time that it's made between black folks and white folks. So, yeah, some heaviness here. I mean, for sure, for such a light film. I, and I didn't know that, but I feel like hearing that and then thinking about this film, I feel like they course corrected. Maybe not a hundred percent, but like quite a bit because i feel like the people of color that are in this group they're the smarter nicer ones <laughs> and like they're i don't feel like they stand out in a stereotypical way like they are 
just as much a part of club as anybody else. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, you want to hear something that's going to make you really sad, though? What? So there was folks from the original series that were alive and, like, working at the time that this movie was made, and they were essentially left out of the film entirely. Like, there was no effort to, like, bring them in in cameos. Mm-hmm. Um, and the original actor who played Stymie, like, went to the set and, like, was really excited about it and said that he felt that he was, like that they did not want him there and that it was incredibly cold and he called his visit to the set hurtful. Mm. Um, and this was especially in light of the fact that Penelope Spheris had done a ad- film adaptation of the Beverly Hillbillies where she included original cast in the film. So that's sad to hear. Yeah. I, that, it's not like this is our favorite movie ever. Yeah. That's, that's shitty to hear about that experience. Cause like, I mean, we can't fully blame Penelope Spheris, like, look, no, 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 no. The I'm fucking laundry list of people that just wrote this movie, like, I'm sure that there's just tons of politics involved in, in everything. But it's, I think that is really shitty that this thing that you were a part of and that is meant just, something to you. Yeah. And that you're excited that they're bringing it back and there might be an opportunity for you to play some sort of role in it to kind of celebrate what you did in the past. And then you're just kind of met with a cold experience. That's a bummer. It is a big bummer. I, I, I want to get to some of the positives about this movie in that as a young boy who had crushes on girls, I had mad respect for Alfalfa's Riz back in the day. <laughs> he does have Riz. I mean, he lets his friends matter too much to him a little bit, but, but he I, does love Darla. But I do appreciate like seeing a young person challenge, a person challenging what they know and standing up for what they love. And like, does he do it perfectly? No. He's also a kid. Yeah, exactly. But and he's I'm also not sure when this is set. It seems like it's not in the 90s, but But then it also seems like it is. Yeah, that might have been on purpose. (laughs) But I also like that he as the story goes on, he's consistently an advocate for for change in small ways and then in bigger ways. And I think the other beautiful thing that this film does it's seemingly a lot more than the original R gang series is just celebrating community and finding your people and standing behind your people. Another thing that this movie does that I really liked, was just like reflecting on your actions and reflecting on things you've done or stances that you've taken and then thinking of ways that you could adapt or understand other people and their views and what is maybe a better way of thinking about something yeah, I mean, there's this there's this classic um, intercut scene in the middle where the girls are having a sleepover and talking about how boys are gross, and the boys are having a sleepover in their clubhouse and they're talking about how girls are gross. But then all of these like stereotypes that they mention then are kind of not kind of they are undone at the end of the film when we see, you know, that like it's the little rascals. How much can we spoil it? There's like one moment where like a boy has a doll and the girl says, I don't like to play with dolls. And he says, I do. Right. And earlier there's a girl who's afraid of lizards, but then there's another girl who likes lizards. And it's just, it takes that scene, which is so stereotypical by the end of the film says, actually you can't rely on those things because there's a myriad of ways that people of all genders, not that this film is thinking about that, but Mm -hmm like and don't like certain things that don't align to a pre-prescribed role based on your gender. 
Also, just a quick note that the girl that likes lizards is our buddy Ashley. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> she would have been buds with Froggy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that that's it's not doing really it in beautiful. big, big, profound ways, but in accessible ways for, ki- for kids for kids who are watching it when we're, we're four probably years old. Sick, like gender rebels, social justice warriors, positive, non derogatory mm-hmm. because of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. 100% all comes back to this. And this, I mean, Waldo is the OG schmuck. Oh, please. Like some people are not redeemable in this movie and those are people with money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people with money are irredeemable and Waldo would have who he has as his dad, as his dad. Yeah. Because um, there's some very solid cameos. His there's dad, some great cameos. His dad is not a solid cameo. I mean, it's fitting thematically, especially now, but it's. Yeah. My, my fave cam is uh i think i have two and it's buckwheat's mom and the person that works at the bank <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's great this has a lot of clever humor too that it's it's smart and makes me as an adult still laugh but i remember laughing at it as a kid so i love that it's not just going for easy the easy laugh that will only get kids to laugh it's, the CGI bubbles haven't stood the test of time, though. I remember thinking they looked really realistic. <laughs> you really stuck on the kid. bubbles. <laughs> what? You really stuck on the bubbles. I just I thought that they were so realistic when I was a child, and now I'm like, oh, those look fake ass. <laughs> <laughs> fake ass bubbles. Get out of here. <laughs> no, Charlie, the chocolate factory bubbles here. Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory bubbles here. Those look real, probably because they were. <laughs> I hate CGI that scene. versus practical in in Willy Wonka. I really do. I really hate both of them burping to get down. And burping doesn't <laughs> usually bug me. I the scene doesn't bother me, and burping does bug me. I really, I really, I, mo- I think just mostly because I, I find Charlie such a piss boy in that movie. <laughs> Have we covered it on the show? Yes. If I didn't say it then, I'm saying it now. Charlie's a huge piss boy. And where's all of his teeth? That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> that is rude. He's poor. <laughs> he can't afford a dentist. That whole family's fucked. There's four people to a bed and... He could have gotten up the whole time and he didn't. That is that- weaponized incompetence, <laughs> let me tell you. Charlie's grandpa weaponizes incompetence more than anybody. We're getting off track. <sighs> Alfalfa's bubbles are not gross. In fact, it's hilarious that it's because of dish soap. I'm surprised he didn't get soap poisoning. <laughs> um, but the CGI was a disappointment for sure. Also, like, I don't feel great that they drew a circle on a dog's eye. But, yeah, you know. Yeah. What did you think of the CGI of the dog's eye roll? Loved that. Nice. I great. loved that. All right. So not a total bust. Not a total bust. Plus, we found a deep cut Halloween costume. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So true. I kind of really want to do it. Yeah. Maybe really Need great. some help from our lizard buddy, Ashley. <laughs> lizard buddy. Anyway, I don't know. This was fun to revisit. It made me laugh a lot. It made me smile a lot. Yeah. I I'm, I was happy to. It's, it, 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 I feel like for the most part, it stands the test of time. And but like at the same time, I don't know that I would actively show this to our nibblings. Yeah, it was better shit. <laughs> so, so you know, has it stood the test of time if we wouldn't? Stand the test of time a lot better than fucking our gang. Well, I don't know about that. 
probably, probably, probably. <laughs> but I haven't seen it, so can't can't speak to that. But I like it. I think for a '90s nostalgia baby who loved it, mm-hmm. it still works. It doesn't make you be like, "Oof." Still pretty great. Darla's the MVP. I felt better coming out of this than I felt coming out of Bring It On. I'll say that. Yeah, you ain't wrong about that. You ain't <laughs> wrong about that. How did Little Rascals make you feel? It made me feel happy to revisit this childhood staple, even if I wouldn't encourage it as a staple for kids now. <laughs> How did it make you feel? Uh, happy to live up the nostalgia. Okay, let's talk about dads. A hundred episodes of naming dads from the films that we watch. Dads of the week, baby. Who's your bad dad? I feel like we're aligned on this. I don't know. All right. I picked uh, Jung Soo from Burning. Damn, we're not aligned, but very good choice. Tell me why. I think that Jung Soo is like the most insidious kind of bad dad in that he thinks he's a good guy. Mm. He thinks he is ethical and smart and hardworking. And the way that this is so insidiously wrong, I think is best shown through his relationship with Jaime, where he essentially feels in like a Ted Mosby kind of way. I was going to say, this is very Ted Mosby. He feels a sense of ownership or this right to her, despite the fact that it's actually told to us very early on that he's a person who's caused her deep emotional harm when they were young. Mm -hmm. And there's no attempt to repair or apologize or reflect on that. Um, In fact, what he becomes most focused on is, is a story where I rescued her true, not is the story where I hurt her true. Mm. Um, Mm. But this inability to see outside of his own perceived understanding of the world is really dangerous. And we see that not just with Jaime, but we also see it with his relationship with his dad and his mom. Mm. And this like focusing on his own interiority and his own understanding of things to the point that he stonewalls any productive, reflective change-based conversation with Jaime, his dad, or his mom, or even with Ben. There's no direct questions asked of him. Like, he could go about things in a different way. He could say, like, do you know where Jaime is? (laughs) And he doesn't do that. And I just think, I think certainly there are bad dads in all of the films that we watched. But there was something that I found so, like, men's rights activists dangerous about Jiangsu. Yeah. Like very incelly behavior and But he doesn't think so. Yeah, and it is that toxic male Like he nice, sees Ben as the dangerous guy when actually maybe he's the most dangerous guy. Yeah. But and he spends, I feel, so much of his time internalizing all of this stuff without, like you're saying, speaking to these people about it or bringing it up or or voicing it at all. So he's just stewing in it and as somebody who has a dad who spends a lot of time in his thoughts to make what he's doing seem valid. That's kind of the worst kind of dad. Yeah. Tell me who you picked though, if I haven't already changed your mind. Jerry Lundegaard. Yeah, he's bad. He's really bad and he is a dad. The thing is that he is a dangerous person and his dangers lie in the fact that his insecurities drive his motivations and his actions. And I think he, again, he kind of expels that nice guy energy and that he is just a hard done by good person. And he works so hard at the car dealership. And that makes him so selfish because it makes him 
feel like he deserves everything because he is just a nice guy doing. And I don't think Jung Soo and Jerry Lundegaard are that far removed from each other. No. Um, I think that one. Yeah, no, <laughs> they, they're like they are pretty similar. Yeah, like I am a nice guy who hasn't had enough good things happen to me. And so I'm going to try to claim that. I think Jerry knows what he's doing is a little bit more wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. What's tough about it is like Jerry's actually a dad. Yeah. And like there's some moments, they're very small moments in Fargo, but you know, after his wife is kidnapped on his, based on his doing, his son is deeply upset and he doesn't care about that at all. Oh yeah. He just lies to put a bandaid on it and just he's to have a petulant piss boy as a parent is the ultimate slap in the face. Cause it's just like, God damn it. Really? We're, you're, you're going to do this. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. They're both real bad for, for honesty's sake. I thought you were going to pick Waldo. <laughs> <laughs> kind of mean. <laughs> Waldo's dad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truly. Um, I think, you know, Jerry is a fuck. But I think that Jong Su, because I made that connect that direct connection to my dad. I also think people know that Jerry's a fuck. And so while he is extremely dangerous, his ineptitude is going to get him in the end in a way that Jung Soo might not have coming to him. Yeah. He's going to Ted Mosby his way through the world and hurt a lot of people. Whereas like, yes, Jerry hurts a lot of people, but like one and done, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's through his actions that we're able to exactly like you're saying through Jerry's actions, we're able to see his bad dadness. Whereas if we weren't, if Jung Soo wasn't our protagonist, and we, we might think he's a pretty good guy. Yeah. We'd be like, man, he's going through he's going through a tough time. Not the okay, case. Okay. So Lee Jung Soo, don't, don't be, be your dad. dad. Be your odd dad. <laughs> I pick Spanky. Oh wow, we were really divergent this week. Okay, tell me about Spanky. So I pick Spanky. Spanky's kind of a brat. I know, I know, but I will say. Spanky from the Little Rascals, he is very clearly a loyal person by the end of the film, at least to those that he cares about. Like, I think throughout the film, he seems like the kind of person that would take a bullet for me, even if I was pissing him off or frustrating him in some way. I still feel like he would stick up for me and would rally our our gang of folks to be there for me and by the end of the film i mean the willingness to reflect and adapt and even change outlooks on on his actions on how he goes about running the club and how he manages his friendships is really beautiful and thoughtful and i also appreciate that he's a proponent of fun and order like I think that he balances both. So that would make for, I think that would make for a really good dad. Like, I mean, honestly, somebody that's just going to put kitty litter in your sandwiches when he's mad at you. But he apologizes. <laughs> right. He thinks about it. He's just like, right, this is where it all kind of started. I fucked it up. That's true. He does do that. 
Uh, so that's my ride, Dad. Who's yours? I picked Margie. I mean, yeah, I was. She was obvious. And oh, no, she was. She was obvious. I mean that in the best way of like, I love Margie. We wax poetic about Margie. We loved her so much. I, I wanted to, I wanted to see if I wanted to challenge myself to to go outside of Margie a little bit. And I'm not talking Margie down at all. I fucking love Margie. Okay, so why I picked Marge Gunderson is she has this ability to see things for what they are and call them out and stand up for, like, saying what needs to be said. But she always does it kindly. And, I mean, you mentioned it when we were talking about the episode. But the, like, I'm not sure I agree with your police work there, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where she's she's being directly honest. She's not sugarcoating it, but she's also not being – she's not, like, some of the ways that Murakami is talked to in Stray Dog – that just like belittle him and make him feel like he can't be a detective as opposed to here where Marge is like, mm, let me challenge that police work because I see something different, but not in a way that belittles mm-hmm. her coworker. It's like a learning moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she encourages reflection. And she's just determined to discover the truth and find justice, but not at the expense of her own life. Yeah, of course. Um, like she still has like this love and kindness and appreciation for her home life. And obviously like, where the film nets out really solidifies that. And she's not going to not true detective style, like let her police work totally encompass her entire life. Also, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil the movie, but she is the opposite. Let's just say when she has the opportunity to catch somebody, she does it the way you're supposed to, Mm -hmm. not the way you're not supposed to, that ends up in an inquisition. Yes. Uh, I'm so glad that you picked her. She is the right choice. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're you're about to get the queen sweep. Yeah. Those are both really good picks. And Margie, the ultimate. Okay. Margie Gunderson. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. Be your Be dad. dad. Eh? <laughs> I got a daddy. Oh, who? Ben. From burning. Oh, yeah. I mean, is that icky? Because he's, I mean, he might not be a bad guy, actually. Yeah. He's a good looking guy. He is a good looking guy. He's too handsome. I mentioned it in my letterbox review and somebody commented, he's so handsome that I had to remind myself what his character is like in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, yeah. Oops, but uh, yeah, Steven Yeun is one of the most handsome people in the world and jinky, jinky, light my fire. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, yeah. All right, Ben. Wheat, wheat woot. woot. Rad Rec time. Okay, Rad Rec. Um, I do think, as we've already spoken about, the different mediums are good and important. And I actually really like, I've really changed my mind since I was younger where I'd be like, the movie's never as good as the book. Why'd they even make it into a movie? And now I'm like, I think having different adaptations of things is interesting and fine and looking at it on its own merit and appreciating certain things about one medium or one adaptation um, while honoring the original source material, I think is a great and interesting part of art. Um, but something that I like to do is I do like to read books that movies are based on, especially when like it's an upcoming movie. Like I know in a year or two or three that this book is going to be a movie. So let's read it now 
so that by the time I see the movie, there's some distance and I'm not directly comparing them. I like to do that. So that's the rad rack is read books or play video games or, or engage with the original source material that a movie is going to be based on with enough time to have distance between when you engage with the original material and the adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, and this came up specifically because um, our good buddy Devin, who was on our Sounds of the Lambs deep dive, lent me the book Hamnet. I am in my book borrowing era because I'm trying not to buy any more books. Um, and Hamnet's supposedly going to be made into a film by Chloe Zhao, who directed No Man Land, which Frances McDormand won an Oscar for. Nope, she didn't. As a producer, she did. Mm -hmm. um, no, she won. She won both. She it won Best Picture and she won Best Actress. Bang, bang. Double, double. Um, so Chloe Zhao is supposedly directing a film adaptation of the novel Hamnet. And supposedly it's going to star Paul Meskel as Billy Shakespeare himself mm -hmm. and Jesse Buckley as his wife, who's named in the book Agnes. Um, and as a English teacher who specifically teaches Hamlet, I did really want to read the book. But as a future girlfriend of Paul Mescal, I really <laughs> wanted to see I really want to see the movie. Um, so I wanted to read the book with enough distance that by the time I hopefully see him in that performance, I can just appreciate the film for what it is without feeling like I'm comparing it to the book. And gosh darn, I love that book. Really liked it. I read you probably a quarter of it yeah. <laughs> in chunks because it was so beautiful. And it made me cry at the end. I don't know if like having a strong understanding of Hamlet made that more emotional for me. Mm. I really, I really, really loved it. I and I know that I won't be comparing it because it's likely going to be years until I see the movie. Yeah. And I think uh, on the other side of the coin, we explore this when we talked about Eileen recently because you had read the book. Too closely. Too closely to us seeing the movie. So That's why I didn't do that with Poor Things. Sometimes I do make the choice that I'll read the book later. Mm-hmm. I do want to read Poor Things. I have a very kind person who's going to lend me that. <laughs> um, so that's the recommendation. Engage with source material for upcoming movies with enough time to appreciate them for their own merits. Beautiful. Thank you so much for listening for these 100 episodes. Here's to 100 more. Let's do this. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever the heck else you listen to podcasts there. But that is going to do it for these little rascals this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember... Not all dads have to be bad. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.